big football day today down in North Carolina because it's the playoff time, right? And so the Panthers are finally in the playoffs again, and I'm, and I'm pretty excited about it. But that's beside the point. Because what I, what the point I want to make is that I guarantee you that if you were to sit down this afternoon and watch um, one of the football games today, you would see a commercial that they show during absolutely every single sporting event. Right? It's a commercial that they replay over and over again for the new video game system that has just come out. Right? The, the PlayStation 4. Right? Minzy and I, we've been, we've been working on the trustees. Like, guys, we kind of need a PlayStation 4 for, for ministry purposes. But, but they're, they're just not buying it. I don't, I don't, they don't get it. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's, it's these commercials for this new video game system. Have you seen any of these commercials? Right? Because the whole marketing campaign for PlayStation, for these, for these new games and these new systems, has all revolved around their, their tagline and their theme of greatness awaits. Right? That is the promise of PlayStation 4. Greatness awaits. In one of the early commercials, there's this really cool masculine guy. He's blowing up stuff and walking towards the screen and like looking you in the eyes. And this is what he says to you. He says, who are you not to be great? Who are you to be ordinary? Who are you to be afraid? Or who are you to be a slave to the past? Who are you to be anonymous? And who are you to deny greatness? It would, if you would deny it to yourself, you would deny it to the entire world, and we would not be denied. Right? That's the message of the world, and that's the message of PlayStation 4. Right? Greatness awaits. You were designed for greatness. You have greatness within you. Right? And we gotta notice how the video game world defines greatness, right? Power and, and success and glory. Right? If you know anything about video games, it's not little kids who are like making the video game market thrive. It's it's thirty plus year old men who are who are buying these systems and games and spending all their time um, doing this. They're they're pursuing greatness in a game, right? and that greatness is um, comes in, in getting and advancing and dominating and winning. That is that is video game greatness. But what's interesting is that the real world defines greatness almost exactly the same way, right? Greatness is found in power and wealth and success and fame and glory and getting and gaining and having more than everyone else, right? The world tells you that you are meant to be great, and then it tells you how to go about achieving that greatness. Sadly, you know, many Christians have bought into this as well. Now, I just found out this week, I didn't know that Joel Osteen had put out a new book. So I figured, since he is my whipping boy and I talk about him all the time, I better, I better read his book and make sure that what I'm saying is correct. So Monday I sat down and kind of skimmed through it and read it, just to make sure that I was right. Uh, I am. Um, but towards the end of the book, this is what Osteen says. It's kind of how he sums things up. He says, God did not create you to be average. He created you to do something amazing. He put the seeds of greatness in you on the inside. Okay, maybe, that's fine. But then if you go through and read through the rest of the book, he defines greatness just like everyone else. It is about financial success. It is about advancement in your work. It is about health and wealth and gaining and getting and having all of these things. I didn't find one mention of sin, no mention of the gospel, no mention of, of the cross or being like Jesus. Just money, success, health, and glory. Right? That is greatness according to PlayStation 4. That is greatness according to the world. And that is the greatness that you have within you according to Joel Osteen. 
right? And that is exactly how the disciples understood greatness as well. It's there in verse 34. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest, right? Imagine this conversation today, right? It'd be ridiculous. Like Edwin's sitting around and he's like, well, wow, listen, I lead the worship. Everyone looks at me and follows me and, and listens to me. And, and I'm a trustee. I, I am obviously the greatest. And then Menzi's like, well, I play the drum. Did you hear that drum, right? The drum was excellent. I, I am obviously the greatest. And VJ, oh, I'm the, I'm the treasurer. I make the bulletins. I, I'm the greatest, right? This would be a ridiculous argument. But being the pastor, you know, being, you know, the, the, the honest and, you know, the holy guy that I am, I'd come in, I'd have to put an end to that argument, right? Well, I'm the pastor, right? Everyone listens to me and does what I say. So, so I am obviously the greatest, right? That, that's probably what I would do in that situation. But such an argument seems so ridiculous to us today. But that's exactly the argument that the disciples were having here 2,000 years ago. Right? It seems so silly that we, we can laugh at it. Right? No way that would happen. But that's, that's what was happening. And you, you just know that Peter was in the middle of this. Right? Peter, something had to come. Well, I, just, I walked on water. None of you got even out of the boat. God just told me he was going to build his church on me, on, on Peter, on, on the rock. Right? Or, or two weeks ago, we saw the transfiguration. Remember? Jesus only takes up um, James, Peter, and John up the mountain. And Jesus says, hey, by the way, don't tell anyone about this. I, I kind of wonder if this argument it has something to do with it. They, they, tend, they tend to not listen to Jesus a lot. Maybe here they're making fun of the nine saying, you guys couldn't even cast out a demon. We're up on a mountain um, seeing the great glory of Jesus. We are obviously greater than you. Right? It seems crazy. But if we understand a little bit about kind of the culture at that time, about Jewish culture, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Because this was a society that was very much obsessed with rank and with standing. We have some writings from rabbis around this time where they, they were arguing about the seating arrangement and the order in paradise. Like, who got to sit the closest to the throne of God? And it was based on who was the most righteous and who had done the most good things. And it was all about rank. And they were always arguing about where you got to sit in meals and in ceremonies and in weddings. This stuff was just so important back then. And this, is, this makes sense of, of Luke chapter 14, right? Jesus, he's invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house, it says. He, he's sitting there, and then it says he, he tells a parable in response to, to what he observes. Verse 7 says, when Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor. And then he goes on to tell a parable specifically about them scrambling and trying to get the best and most important seat. Right? Honor and power and rank and recognition were very important back then. Right? So their, their argument isn't all that surprising considering um, the, the context. And plus, come on, let's, let's all be honest. Right? Let's agree not to, to lie to ourselves here. We're, we have the common sense to not voice such things out loud, but every single one of us is, is having these conversations in our heads uh, that sometimes. God, look, at, look at that guy. Right? Can you believe that guy did that? I am obviously greater than that guy. We all do this um, at some time. Because deep down, we all desire greatness. Right? We all desire to be known and appreciated, to be successful, to have money and things and comfort and ease. All of those things. We, we desire those. Um, who, hasn't, who in here hasn't thought, man, you know, I really just wish someone would notice what I'm doing here, here out scraping the sidewalks. I wish someone would just recognize how much time I'm putting in this. I wish someone would just acknowledge um, how good of a job that I am doing. 
Right? Who in here hasn't desired a raise or a promotion or a job that is more fitting of your um, greatness? Something with more authority and with more money. We all desire greatness. And the problem is that we have let the world define greatness for us. Power, money, fame, and success. And we, we, we buy right into the pull of the culture. Right? Skip down to 38 real quick. We see another example of this. Their, their desire for greatness shows itself another way. John says in verse 38 to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Right? Come on, John. Right? At, least, at least act like you're not being um, arrogant here. Notice what he says. Not that he wasn't following you, Jesus, but that he wasn't following us. Right? These guys aren't following me. They're not following the disciples. They're not part of the twelve. What are they doing? They, they can't be that important. Right, so here we're seeing their desire for greatness, and not just greatness, but exclusive greatness as well. And this is what pride does. It not only desires the, the fame and the success and the glory, but it also desires that no one else have any of it as well. Right, the disciples, they want the greatness, and they want it all to themselves. Right, so that's the disciples and the world's definition of greatness. But I want you to notice something important about Jesus' response to them. Notice, he never criticizes their desire for greatness. Right, Jesus never rebukes them for wanting it. He, he, he never says, no, 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 don't desire for greatness. He just, he, he, apparently, it's not wrong to desire this. But notice what he does. Jesus completely redefines what greatness is. And he does so in a number of different ways in just these few short verses. What we're going to see Jesus do, he draws a very sharp distinction between worldly greatness and godly greatness. Or spiritual greatness or kingdom greatness, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Look at what he says there in verse 35. He says he calls them together and he sits down. Right? Rabbis at that time, they, they generally taught from a seated position. I'm thinking about trying to implement that. Like, I really like sitting. That would be pretty cool if, you know, if that, never mind. I don't think that would go over very well here. But they, they taught from a seated position. And this was a, a signal to his disciples to, to pay attention. This was important. I am about to teach you something that you need to learn. And he says there, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Right, listen, this is so much more revolutionary than we think. We're just we're so used to hearing this stuff that it doesn't shock us anymore. Right? It doesn't upset us or, or change anything about you know, what we're used to. But this would have absolutely kind of changed their, their, and reoriented their whole way of thinking. They've been arguing about greatness. And he says, if you want to be first, right? Listen, that's how the world defines greatness. It is about being first. It is about being better or in front of, of other people. If you really want to be great, Jesus says, then you've got to be last and you've got to serve. I mean, that, would have, that would have made no sense to them in an honor and kind of power-based culture. Do you want to be great? And I remember, we're being honest. We all do. And so Jesus says, you really want to be great in the eyes of God, become a servant. He says, greatness equals serving others. Worldly greatness is about you. You are the center and the focus. The spotlight is shined on you. You want people to notice you, to respect you, and to give you things. Godly greatness is completely about others. Right? It, is, it is doing what you can to make sure that others 
are the center and the focus. It is intentionally taking the spotlight off of yourself and shining it on other people. You want them to get noticed. You want other people to get respect and recognition. You don't want to get things. You want to give things to other people. So worldly greatness, me-focused. Godly greatness, other-focused. Right, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you've got to serve. And then as any good teacher would, he, he illustrates his point. He, he, he takes a child, he puts a child in the midst of him, takes him in his arms and says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. First, notice what Jesus is not saying. Right? Jesus is not saying, be like a child here. Right? That's not this spot. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, be like me who loves and serves this child. Right? This is not about being like a child. This is about being like Jesus. Why does he use a child as an illustration? And I, I learned something about this. I, I didn't know um, this as I was reading through some of this. Children 2,000 years ago did not have near the, the standing and the importance that they do in our society today. Right? We obsess over our little children. We completely reorient and structure our lives around them. We love and adore and highly value and esteem our children, as, as we should. But that was not um, the case back then. Right, this child here is not used as an illustration of innocence, but of helplessness and insignificance. Right, not innocence, as we think, helpless and insignificance. Because societies with a very high infant mortality rate, they, they, they could not afford to be overly sentimental about um, babies and about children. Children back then had no power, no status, and no rights. They were utterly dependent and vulnerable and weak. Right? This is the illustration, this is the example, the type of people that Jesus is, is commanding us to put before ourselves and to serve. Not innocence, but insignificance. The, the last. Jesus says you want to be first, then make yourself last by putting the very last in front of you. Right? Don't go out and serve the rich and hope you get something. Go out and, and serve the very people from whom you can get nothing in return. So according to Jesus, greatness is service, right? And it is service particularly to those in the most need. What about greatness in his response? What does the exorcist have to do with it there in the second part, um, the one that's not following them? Um, again, this is it's completely ironic here what's happening. Remember, what did we look at last week? The disciples' failure to be able to, to cast out a demon. Now here is a man successfully doing what they could not do, and they're trying to, to shut him down. Right? And Jesus tells them not to. Right? Jesus says in verse 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So the disciples, they want the greatness, and they want the greatness for themselves. Right? And Jesus says, no. He says, you want to be great, then you've got to also be able to rejoice when other people are successful. You've got to be okay with other people doing things well that maybe you wish you could be doing. And this is a really helpful reminder um, to me. Right? Sometimes i got to remind myself, like, am, I, am I desiring the kingdom of God to expand in Woodside, or am I desiring my kingdom to expand in Woodside? Right? Would I be alright if a gospel preaching church opened up right across the street and just started finding great 
success, reaching all kinds of people in big numbers and all kinds of conversions, right? Because I know myself pretty well that there would be some sense and hint of, of jealousy and frustration of, man, you know, why, why are they getting all the good things over there? Well, what's, what, why is this not happening here, right? Would I be jealous of their success or could I, by God's grace, rejoice that the gospel is going forth in another place, Right? Jesus' word here is important to us. We should be able to rejoice wherever the gospel is rightly preached. Right? Because it is not about me, and it is not about us. Listen, worldly greatness is, but biblical greatness isn't. Biblical greatness is about serving others and, and rejoicing when God gets the glory and the gospel goes forth. Right, so Jesus is all for greatness. He's all about it. He says, yes, pursue greatness. But he completely redefines what that greatness entails. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to do something that I think is, is really important. Because I don't want this to come across as the, all right, you're supposed to serve other people. You go out and serve other people now. Right? I'm just going to tell you what you need to do. Right? But what I want to first look at, and I want us to understand before that is that we, we've got to know where the motivation for this greatness comes from. I want us to know the reason why we are to pursue this redefined greatness. Because this, this goes against what, what Jesus is telling us here. It goes against everything that the world is telling us. So notice first the irony of the timing of their debate. And this, this is important. Their argument about who is the greatest comes right after another prediction from Jesus that he is going to be killed. And here we are again, one of those drums that I'm continually beating over and over again. Context is key. All right, this is all related and tied together. To understand this passage, you've got to understand what comes before it, and you need to understand what comes after it. Because Mark puts this here for a specific reason. Why does the argument about greatness and then Jesus' teaching about true greatness come right after another prediction of his suffering and death? Because as we've been saying all along, what Jesus does as Messiah informs what we are to do as disciples. His Messiahship defines our discipleship. Right, and this goes to a, back to a discussion that we, kinda, we had a really, really long time ago briefly that I want to go back to for a second, because this is important. I want to talk for a second about the important difference between indicatives and imperatives. Right? I don't expect you to know those words. Let me, let me explain what those are. Right? This is grammar. It's really boring stuff. Right? Indicative and imperative. These are verb moods, which just means basically how the word is intended to be understood, how the word is being used in a sentence. Right, so the indicative is the mood of certainty, which just means it is used to refer to something that has happened. Right, indicative, something that has happened. The imperative is the mood of command. Right, it is used to refer to something that we are called and told to do. Think of it like this. If I, if I said to Emma, my daughter, Emma talked to Eldwin, Right? That's the indicative, right? It is something that has happened, right? And, and it does all day. She just walks around on a little pretend phone and she just talks to Eldwin nonstop about ping pong and about playgrounds and all these things. It's her first crush and I'm concerned about it. She's, she's obsessed. She's obsessed with Eldwin, right? That's the indicative. Emma talked to Eldwin. It is something that has happened. 
But if I were to say, Emma, talk to Eldwin, right? That's the imperative. I am commanding her to do something, which, by the way, I would never have to do because she just wants to talk to Eldwin all the time, right? It's, it's a serious obsession that she has. But that's the difference between indicative and imperative, right? It is, it is what has happened versus what we are commanded to do. And this is just really important to understanding the, the gospel, basically. In, in Scripture, the indicative is what God has done, and the imperative is what we are called to do in response. Right? And that order is so important. Right? That order is the difference between the gospel and religion. That order is the difference between life and death. Because religion flips the order. And sadly, some, some, Christian, some Christians flip the order as well. Religion says imperative, then indicative. Right? Religion says you do these things, and then in light of what you have done, God will do something for you. Right? But that's not the gospel. Right? The gospel is always indicative first, what God has done for us, and then imperative what we are commanded and called to do in response. Do not get the order wrong, because then you're just talking about something that is completely different from the gospel. So, I'm sure you're thinking this, what in the world does all of this have to do with Mark 9 and greatness? Well, everything, right? We talked about, we just talked about what Jesus is commanding his disciples to do. He is commanding them to serve others. But I skipped the first part of our passage for a reason, so that we could then come back to it at this point. Jesus does not just say, do these things, serve, and you'll be great. Right? He doesn't just give them a list of rules to keep. You've got to read it in context. He commands them to do something right after he has just told them what he is going to do for them. He is going to suffer and die for them. Jesus' action comes first, and then their action. We'll see this even more clearly in a couple weeks. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me. Jesus does not just say, serve. He says, serve because I have already served you. Serve in response to what I have already done for you. And this is what we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. It says, we love because he has first loved us. And I love what John says a few verses earlier in, in 10 through 11. John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Man, I love that passage. It's just, it, that is the gospel. It is, it, is, it is beautiful. And I'm almost positive that what John is writing there in 1 John 4 is directly tied to and coming from what Jesus is teaching him here in Mark chapter 9. Notice what John is saying. Love is not that we have loved God. Right? He's speaking to those who may get the order flipped. Right? He, he, he's saying, listen, don't get the order wrong. Don't try and kind of be good enough first or love God first or impress God first so that he will then owe you and then respond to you. John says, no, 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 it's, 
It's not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us first. Right? Our love for Him is a response to what He has already done for us. Indicative, then imperative. And what John says there in verse 11 is exactly the point we need to take away from our passage in Mark 9. If God so loved us, if He has done this, therefore, then we also ought to love one another. It's not just love one another. It's in light of God's love for you, then love one another. In light of the indicative, in light of the amazing love God has shown us, particularly at the cross, we should then be compelled to want to love and to serve one another, which is the imperative. And that's the gospel. God initiates. God acts first. He does something for us, and then we respond to that. And that's why, if you flip back to Mark, that's why Jesus' prediction of his death comes before his command to serve. He doesn't just say, do this. He says, look at what I am going to do for you. And then in light of that, you go and do likewise. He says, I am Jesus. I am God in the flesh. I am clearly the greatest one here. All right, that's the great irony of their argument. You have 12 dumb fishermen and, and tax collectors. These guys, they're sitting around arguing about their greatness. While the 13th one of their party, the other person there is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator and sustainer and savior of the universe. Jesus is the only truly great one and he demonstrates his greatness to us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the only truly great one and he serves us by giving his life for us. So all Jesus is saying here in his command to serve is, is be like me. Do what I do. Follow me. Serve others as I have already served you. So, and this is an important distinction. We serve not so that God will love us. Right? That's religion. We do these things so that God will be impressed and love us. We serve not so that God will love us, but because he already does. Right? His love, his action comes first. And that's the gospel. God loved us and served us when we had made ourselves totally unlovable. When we had rejected him and rebelled against him and turned our backs on him, he still loved us. And we can know that love by simply looking at the cross. He loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. We all deserve to die based upon what we have done. It is just that sin, right? And sin is basically just crime against God, as we've argued. It is just that sin be punished. But the gospel, the good news, is that God punishes Jesus for our crime. He punishes Jesus in our place. Jesus in my place. He saves us from the penalty that we deserve, and he sets us free. He restores us back to relationship with God, and he gives us eternal life. Now that is good news. And the point that I'm trying to make is that if you really understood it, if you really understood the gravity of your sin and the reality of hell, by the way, that's what we're talking about next week. Next week, we're talking about hell. Right? If you've ever wondered, like, how in the world does this work? How in the world could a good and loving God have a place like hell? If you've ever had that question, come back next week because we're really going to wrestle with 
with the biblical doctrine of hell. So there's a little teaser. Come, come back next week. But, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that if we really understood how good and how holy God is, if we really understood how wicked we are and how terrible and eternal our suffering was going to be, and that God saved us from all that when we did not deserve it, then that should naturally lead to a desire to serve. Why? Because we want to serve. Right? We're not talking here about grudging, bad attitude, doing it only because you feel like you have to service. We're talking about a passionate desire to serve. And I've used the illustration before about the size of a debt. Right? How the size of the debt determines our response to the one who paid the debt for us. Remember, like, so if, if Mr. Jim paid for a, a stamp for me in my place, like 43 cents or whatever it is, I'm like, oh, thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. That was nice. 43 cents. It's really not that big of a deal, but, you know, I appreciate it. But, you know, if the IRS showed up and I owed $250,000 to them, a debt that I could never pay, and Jim stepped in and paid that debt for me, my response to him would be entirely different, right? I would want to be friends with Jim and to love and to serve and, and to be in relationship and to know and to be with Jim. The size of the debt that he, he has paid for me determines my response to him, right? And that is what we're talking about here with the gospel. The size of the debt that has been paid for us is unimaginably large. I was reading a book this week. I told a story that I thought illustrated this point so well. It's a story from the Civil War. Um, it's before the slaves had been freed, right? Before um, the proclamation. It's about a northerner who, who comes down. He goes down to a slave auction down in the south, and he purchases a young slave girl. Uh, and they're, 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 he gets the, you know, the form he has to have, whatever you have to do, and they're, they're leaving, they're, they're walking away um, from this. And he turns to the little girl, and he says, um, uh, he says, basically, he says, you're free. And she, you know, just amazed, she stops, she responds to him, you, you mean that I, I'm free to do whatever I want? Uh, he looks at her like, yes, that's, that's what I mean. She says, you mean that I can say whatever I want to say? He's like, yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. He says, you mean that I can be whatever I want to be? He's like, yes, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. She says, you, you mean that I can go wherever I want to go? And he answers, yes, you are free to go wherever you'd like. And the story goes that she looked at him, she, she, she loved him, and she replied, then I will go with you. Right? What a beautiful picture of the gospel and then our response to it. Right? Because this poor girl was a slave, right? Sin, we are sinners. That it is referred to often in scripture. It is talked about as, as slavery. But she had no rights, she had no hope, and there was nothing that she could do to save herself. But this man comes in from the outside into her situation and he acts on her behalf. He purchases her. He ransoms her. He redeems her. He takes on her price himself and pays her penalty and frees her. That's the gospel. That is what God has done for us in, in purchasing us and redeeming us and freeing us. And her response to this man is a perfect picture of what we are to do in response. She did not have to go with the man, but she wanted to go with the man because he had saved her and because he was good. That is why we serve. That is our motivation to pursue this redefined greatness because God has so graciously 
saved us. He has saved our lives. We would be dead and spending eternity suffering apart from him had he, done not, had he not done that. That debt that he paid is so much greater than a quarter of a million dollars. How can we not then want to, to thank him and to be in relationship with him and, and to follow him in response? And listen, if you have no desire to serve, right, if, if the thought of doing something menial and, and thankless um, for people less great than you are is off-putting, then maybe you haven't quite understood the gospel. Right? Because, the, um, because the gospel says that we were the poorest, dirtiest, most unlovable and wretched people in the world when Jesus gave his life um, in service of us. How can we not then desire to turn around and, and in thankfulness and, and gratitude want to serve others in response? Right, so that is, is biblical greatness according to Jesus. Greatness is service. Right, the one we follow was the ultimate servant. And he calls anyone who would come after him to serve as well. Are you doing that? How are you following Jesus in this area? Where in your life or in this church are you serving other people? And listen, one of the easiest ways to do that is to get involved in the life of your church. Do you call Woodside Community Church your home? Right? Then, then where are you serving? Listen, I'm not going to try and guilt you. I'm not going to sit up here and try to make you feel bad. We don't want begrudging service. Uh, we don't want service for the purpose of making yourself feel better or just because we told you to. But we do want gospel-motivated service. And listen, quite honestly, we could use some help. We have a, a handful of people burning themselves out in service of, of the people in this place, working really hard, tired, tirelessly to, to keep this place running, and they could use some help. We could use help in with the kids, right? Jesus uses an illustration of children. You want to find a place to serve, there, there's a perfect spot to jump in and fill in and to help with our kids, right? We could use the assistance. If you're interested in serving, talk to me. Talk to VJ or, or Joanna with the kids or, or Elaine with the kids, and we'll, we'll find a place to plug you in. But again, I'm not trying to guilt you, right? That's, that's, that's not the point. I'm sure I'm going to hear someone after our service, oh, he's just trying to manipulate us or to get us to, to do something. No, listen, I'm, I'm really not, all right? We're, we're going to be all right. We're going to be fine. Uh, my concern is not us, but, but quite honestly, my concern would be more about, it would be, it would be you, because, you know, a, a desire and a heart for service is one of the best evidences of an experience with God's grace. Right? We've been making the case that for everyone God justifies, he, he also sanctifies. Right? For everyone God justifies, there's also a change of interests and of, and of desires and, and, and a desire to be with him and to be like him and to follow him. No matter how slow or laborious that process might be, as it is for all of us at some time. Right? The, the point is that serving is not an optional add-on for the super-Christians or, or for the professional Christians. No, service is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life. And we are called, all of us, to serve others in some fashion. Are you doing it? And if not, you should at least examine why. Because the gospel is that God has served you through Jesus Christ in such an amazingly huge and life-saving way. That, that, that then you can't but help to, to see his great love for you and then desire to, to, to pour that love out on other people in response to what he has done for us. Do you desire greatness? And Jesus says, greatness 
his servants. He says, do you desire greatness? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, do what I do. Right, let's, let's turn to him and, and ask him for his help in, in prayer. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for this um, passage. We thank you for the truths of your scripture here. Father, I pray that you would move me aside and that your spirit would work in this place to apply, to apply these truths to my heart and to the heart of everyone in here. Father, we confess that we desire greatness, and we confess that sometimes that desire is, is completely defined um, by the world's definition of greatness. I confess my desire to, to be great and to have standing and money and power and authority. But Father, I pray that you would, you would humble us. Father, I pray that you would show us um, true greatness. Father, I pray that no one would leave here feeling guilty or feeling like, oh, I need to start serving and, and figure some things out. Father, I pray that we would leave here dwelling on the gospel. We would leave here amazed by what you have done in service of us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in, it is in understanding that, it is in delighting in the gospel that, that we would then turn around and want to serve and to share and to love other people. Father, motivate us by your grace. Motivate us by the good news of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you um, for him. We thank you um, that he didn't just come to give us a moral example, Father, but he came to die to rescue us. So, Father, we thank you for rescuing us. We thank you uh, for allowing us and bringing us back into relationship with you. Father, help us. Father, we do believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief. Father, we pray that you would motivate us by your grace to serve you by loving and serving others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.